Radio in San Francisco, this is Flashpoints. I'm Dennis Bernstein. Today on the show, Two Gun America killing its children at an accelerated rate. Another elementary school shooting claims six, three of them. Very young children. What's happening, America? What's happening in this two gun society? We're going to spend some time on that today and some else, something else as well. Stay with us. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein. This is your daily investigative news magazine. And we are really troubled here at Pacifica, in my brain anyway, about one more school shooting. This country doesn't seem to love its children. We're going to spend some time on this with somebody who uh, knows a lot about what's going on behind the scenes and has felt the dangers and the tragedy up close. Uh, Welcoming back to this uh, show, Professor Robert Bozenko. He uh, teaches U.S. foreign policy at the University of Houston. He currently co-hosts the Green and Red podcast, which discusses politics and history. And another credential, which I'm sure uh, the professor would like to do about, is that uh, he is uh, another victim, lost his child to gun violence. Um, Professor Bazanko, every time... uh, this happens, this must bring it all back to you. I, I really wanted to touch base with you today because you've thought about it, you know, personally and sociologically and all the different ways we need to be thinking about this. Uh, welcome back to Flashpoints. The one thing I haven't heard on all the stories, endless stories, is I haven't heard the thing about the gun problem. I hear about some psychological training and the side door was open, wasn't locked. But that gun, that gun that does the killing, never gets talked about. Um, um, yeah, it's it's good to talk to you, unfortunately, not, not under these circumstances. But, uh, you know, it sounds kind of trite, but um, there's only one thing that is common in 100% of these incidents, and that's a gun. It's always there. It's a gun, right? There's different stuff going on, but there's always a gun. And, you know, yeah, you're just seeing the same thing today, values. And Marjorie Taylor Greene said something insane about testosterone and, you know, the doors and this and that. But, yeah, it's about guns. Tennessee said they were going to protect children by banning drag shows, you know, a dress code, basically. And yet they have the same kinds of gun laws that Texas has, you know, no permit, no training, no background check. And, um, yeah, these things jolt me, obviously, on a very personal level. But I think they do that. I mean, this is America, right? I mean, 22 kids in second grade at, at Newtown and 19 kids at Uvalde. And um, it's hardly worth mentioning that unless there's a certain number. Uh, so, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Like you, I'm angry and sad and frustrated, you know. Well, one of the things that we often don't think about in terms of the gun violence is the uh, violence uh, that folks and oftentimes young people inflict upon themselves. And this is something that you've experienced firsthand. Would you share a little bit about your experience and 
a lot about your thinking about this experience. Help us understand uh, your reasoning and, and how you continue to deal with this stuff. Sure. Um, my son died by suicide using a gun uh, when he was 21 years old, and he bought it, like I think, on his birthday, you know, or something. I just went to a sporting goods store here in Texas, you know, and boom. And, um, you know, I think there's something I like to point out to people. Uh, over half of the gun deaths in America are suicides. So as horrible as these school shootings are, um, they're not uh, the biggest percentage by far. It's actually suicides, you know, because in a moment of distress or whatever, you, you pick up a gun and over half the suicides involve a gun because it's it's final. It's far more likely to be final. And I think, um, you know, that's something that isn't even talked about, you know, and it's connected to the mental health and these other kinds of, of issues as well. And, you know, if you want to protect children, that's the kind of, that's where you start, you know, you create safe environments so they're not afraid, so they don't think they need a gun for protection or because you don't have this kind of weird culture. I mean, in Texas, they have gun shows where they have starter gun kits for like five-year-old kids, you know, it's not unusual. And, you know, you take kids, I mean, hunting is different. I get that. But, you know, I mean, kids are grazed really in a, in a gun, cause gun shows every weekend every, at all the, in all the major Texas cities. And ironically, and I think we've talked about this before, you know, the vast majority of Texans, not the vast, but a big majority of Texans support gun, some gun regulations all across the board, you know, on, on assault rifles, on background checks, on, on all of that permits, um, you know, and, and yet, um, you know, after Uvalde, nothing got done. After El Paso, there were two or three shootings last week that, you know, barely were mentioned in the news because they were, you know, one or two people at a high school kind of thing, and you know, hardly worth mentioning, right? Um, and I, I think something else that's really important that, that very few Americans talk about because, you know, our governor here is, always goes crazy about the border, and you have to protect America. Well, the border, the real people who need to protect at the border are the Mexicans because that's where the guns are coming from. They're coming from Texas. Texas, Mexico has very strict gun laws. 70% of the guns used in cartel crimes are, are from Texas, from the United States. And in fact, whoa, I, whoa, whoa, whoa. Say that again. Yeah, Say 70, that again. 70% of the guns used in Mexico are, are from the U S and especially from Texas. Perfect. So, you know, this idea that the criminals are coming across the border. No, the guns are going across to Mexico. That's, that's what's fueling cartel wars. That's what's fueling drug murders. Those people who were killed recently in Matamoros, those guns were from Texas. And in fact, and this, I didn't even know this, and I follow this pretty closely. The, the government of Mexico has filed a lawsuit against American gun manufacturers for this reason. So um, it's, I mean, that's stunning, right? You know, the, we, we talk about the lawlessness of the cartels. Well, it's actually the Texas guns which are making that possible. Remind people uh, a little bit about your governor, about uh, what the laws are now in Texas, and if he really had his way, what it might look like. I mean, the, the laws are obviously very, very relaxed. There, uh, there's no longer even permit. There's, there's now permitless carry where you don't even need to. I mean, I think the the requirements are that you. Um, uh, you know, you not be a convicted felon, you be at least 21, and you not be drunk when you're purchasing your gun. I'm not kidding. There's actually in there about not being intoxicated. Uh, and and um, if you have that, you can carry your gun in a public place. If you have a permit, you can carry it on campus. So 
uh, Texas campuses, you know, public campuses have guns. Uh, they're proposing a new law. This is actually what you you know how you mentioned at the start that the diversions away from dealing with the problem of guns at schools is this and that. So in Texas, they're proposing now that um, school staff and teachers be armed, and that they to do this they take a 15 hour uh, training course or something like that, and they can carry guns in school, right? So you have, I mean, not only is that ridiculous and dangerous, and it's clearly not going to work, but I mean. I keep thinking about the traumatic effect this has on kids. You know, I teach U.S. history, and we were talking about duck and cover, which uh, you and I remember, right? And um, mm-hmm. well, you were under your desk. These kids now have to hide in their lockers for these shooter drills. And, I mean, that's just got to be terrifying, you know? I mean, mentally and, and emotionally, that's got to be terrifying. And, you know, they would rather have these kids go through this trauma rather than actually do something, you know, and, and they are, are just cruel and, and malevolent. And, you know, if the governor had his way, yeah, there, there wouldn't even be that. And, of course, you know, these guys walk around with the Texas Rangers and all kinds of security and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And John Cornyn today said that, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, the senator from Texas said that, uh, you know, AR-15, apparently this is another AR-15. I don't know what the details are, but that's one of the reports I read. He said that's just a talking point, right? And, uh you know, in fact, I don't know, like I said, this is early, but one of the reports I read about Tennessee said that um, the the young woman shot the door because people are saying the door was unlocked. I read her another report that said she shot it open. I mean, AR-15 can shoot a door open, so I'm not sure a, a locked door, gonna, you know, what's that going to do, right? Um, but just think of the, the, the and you, you have a, a background in education, and just think of the trauma on these young kids, you know, just thinking about it and preparing for it. Well, that's the <laughs> that's the thing that keeps getting to me. I did spend almost twelve years teaching very young children. <clears throat> they were uh, considered emotionally disturbed, uh, and it's issues like this and confrontations with unnecessary confrontations with violence that are are killing our children. And the, you know the. All, nobody's ever going to be the same in that school uh, yeah. uh, where the killing happened this morning. And we don't even, I mean, the the reverberations of that kind of violence. Now, we hear that the shooter is 28 years old and a former student of the school. What does that mean? Yeah. It's, it's, it's a female. Are there, does that mean that, you know, here, like um, pro-choice, we get, now women can be shooters too. Well, yeah, but guns have protection, whereas women's bodies don't. You know, so <laughs> guns are protected. That's right. Yeah, um, that's right. I mean, you know, but we've also you give the governor here. Um, you know, we've talked a couple times about Uvalde, and essentially those cases are all closed. There were four hundred police that day. You know, basically at the scene, and um, five have had some kind of consequences, disciplined, or I think two were terminated, but five out of 400. And just last week it came out, they got, you know, they released more documents that said, they said very clearly that they like, we're afraid to go in because he has a semi-automatic, he has an AR-15. Like the police, 400 freaking cops are afraid to go in because, because of this. And, you know, and, and the majority of Texans believe semi-automatic weapons should not be sold, should not, you know, be privately owned and, uh, it's a small number of people, you know, who do it. Um, and, um, something else that's important too, because I know the Republicans always love to talk about a lot of people love to talk about, look at all the crime in Chicago, look at the big cities in states that have 
you know, stronger gun laws. The majority of guns come from other states, like Chicago, Massachusetts, New York, places like that. Those guns are coming from Virginia, from Mississippi, from Indiana, states that don't have gun laws. So, you know, in states that do have gun laws, there's there's 14 percent less gun crime. So they do work. And it would be more than 14 percent if there weren't this easy access to guns just coming over across the you know the state line. So, you know, uh, background checks have always worked. They check every year, like 20, 25,000 people who have felonies or some record of a violence in their background are denied guns. It, you know, they do work. Um, so it's, it's uh, you know, all of these talking points are just BS, but it, it, it doesn't matter. I guess it doesn't matter. And, yeah, the idea of life and pro-life is obviously just a, a disgusting Orwellian, you know, term. Well, I, I take it as this culture really doesn't love its children. It, it's starting to be very obvious uh, because everybody knows where the violence, you know, what the meaning of having a, an AR-15 uh, in your hands and how many people you can kill and how fast and all that. And yet you've got Congress people walking around Congress today with little AR-15 pins. Yeah. Um, uh, I hear, I keep hearing that the NRA is losing its grip, losing its power. Now, I know they've had a few controversies, but I don't see them losing a grip. I, and I think that the gun lobby and the commerce uh, behind it is the driving force, and it's never going to stop. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the NRA has lost some membership and it's lost a couple court cases internally. There's all kind of corruption. But, you know, obviously look at their political clout. But I mean, it's the same country that spends nearly a trillion dollars on a military budget, which is throwing billions around in in Ukraine and which is, you know, ramping up for this confrontation against China. But, you know, uh, my family's from a place in Ohio, which is about 30 minutes from East Palestine, where that train derailed, you know, they've got nothing there. You know, they don't even have, like, testing for these people who have these really serious health problems. And so it's just our, it's our society, right? I mean, this it's a, it's a violent place, and you're going to spend money on the military, on police, on guns, all this stuff. And, you know, children are a prop. They're used. To, it's a prop. You know, like, oh, look, we love the kids, you know. And, you know, obviously, you know, we want to protect the kids from drag shows or some ridiculous thing like that. Um, it's a, just a prop, and it's it's terrifying. I mean, it's... It's, uh, you know, again, you know, we've lived through a lot of stuff and maybe like me, you probably thought, okay, it can't get any worse than this. Cause I remember years ago thinking, oh, I can't get any worse than this, but, um, you know, actually there, there isn't a bottom. And, um, I know like, you know, I listen to you and I, I read things you've written. I read your poetry and it's very moving. And, you know, I mean, I think there's a lot of people like that, like us who, who do care, who worry. There's a great group called moms demand action on gun sense and, you know, yes. I mean, the vast majority of Americans want something done. And um, I don't know. It's just uh, I, it would seem to me that I, I don't know as easy as it was to just ban abortion rights and ban, you know, everything else. I mean, you know, maybe some of these governors of progressive states should take, you know, executive action. I, I don't know what. Honestly, I don't have a, uh, an idea of what to do because I've been studying this for a long time. And like you said, I'm personally affected by it. And it is hard on the kids. I mean, you're starting to see suicide rates are, are increasing. I mean, you know, that's, it's a tough life. They've look at what they've lived through. You know, they have these active shooter drills. They have global warming. They've had economic uh, breakdowns and a pandemic. And, 
you know, and everybody talks about kids, but nobody really does it. Education is being underfunded and defunded every day. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a terribly depressing, you know, place. I don't want to insult third world countries because I think many of them have a bigger commitment to kids than the U S does, you know, it's, it's, um, really confounding. And uh, again, um, this, it really sends a certain kind of message, you know, to the future, through the children, through the blood, through the genetics. Listen, we've got now, we've got seven and eight-year-olds who have guns who come to school and feel that they need to protect themselves or that their teacher is now dangerous. They might have to shoot their teacher. We're seeing... We, we're seeing it's it's inexplicable other than it's just sort of an overwhelming pro-gun culture. Yeah. And you see it everywhere, and there goes that eight-year-old, and they feel better now. They feel safer now. What, are we going to now have to invent um, uh, a, an electric high chair uh, because it's time to get uh, tough on we're going to prosecute you if you can uh, if you can uh, pee in the the bowl uh, then uh, you can fry in the chair yeah it's no it's uh, i know you know my son used to say he needed a gun you know because it's texas and he would even say that it's texas and you know he was a college student and he was fine you know but just the, the, the pervasive in the media here every day, if you, I don't even watch the local news because it starts with, like, you think it's, you know, it sounds like a war zone and they talk about this and that and this and that, you know, and, and there's a lot of it is propaganda, you know, the poor police, blah, 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 and the police were killing people. And, and, and it just creates this incredibly terrified, fearful place where people, you know, are expecting the worst. And, and you know, it's, you know, their crime may go up, but there are, you know, most cities are pretty safe. And crime has actually gone back down again, right? And, and remember last year they had the big hysteria about shoplifting. Well, the reality is those numbers were all made up. Shoplifting had not gone up the way it had, right? It's a t- During the elections, everybody's concerned about crime. And it's just, you know, and like in your area, right, uh, uh, you know, with the, the assaults on homeless people, right? Uh, you know, you go after people who are vulnerable, the homeless, children, you know, and, and you act like you're, it's, it's this mind game. They act like they're, you know, saving them or protecting them when in fact they're using them as a prop in their own political, political games. You know, I've, uh, it's just, it's, it's terrifying, you know, and at least, you know, certain things like I was talking to a friend the other day about the suicide issue. And he, I remembered and he reminded me that, uh, the, in San Francisco, they put up, um, what netting at the golden gate bridge, right? Because so many people were, were jumping off that. And the numbers went down considerably. So they, they saw a problem and they did something about it, right? That's pretty simple stuff, yet, you know, with something like this where it's always a gun and, and no one's willing to just like, I mean, it is more than an elephant in a room. It's the only thing in the room. And yet, you know, people, not people, but a small number of people who have power won't do anything about it. It's terrifying that a gun has that, that hold on them, that fetish. Would you say a little bit more about the role how how does uh the the gun lobby and guns uh, play its way into the politics of texas does it still play a major role uh is it still one of the bit uh the the big um issues that can move people one way or another 
Gun, yeah. I mean, it's just kind of taken for granted here. And, you know, the one thing I'll say, like, especially in the last 10 years, is that if you look at just like public opinion, it's it's actually moved fairly considerably toward a, a more uh, pro-regulation or pro-gun, you know, common sense position on guns. You know, so the stereotype holds true at the state house with the lunatics there. But most Texans aren't like that, you know. Um, a small number of people own a majority of guns. You know, it's like a lot of people own multiple guns. Uh, you know, many people aren't safe. You know, last year, the biggest uh, in, in crimes involving guns, the biggest uh, place where they got them was from from uh, stolen from cars. So people, you know, they, they talk about being sensible. They would leave their guns in their cars. That's one of the reasons, like when, you know, I've talked to people before who had their homes robbed. And one of the first, they go for jewels and guns. That's what they look for, jewelry and guns in, in Texas. So if you if you have a gun and, and people know about it, you you may your house may get robbed as well. You know the the thing you're there you're using allegedly to protect yourself is actually becomes the target for for criminals, right? So um, gun theft is is the biggest co- uh, 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 producer of guns used in crime in America because people aren't even safe with them. So it's it's. And then, like you pointed out, you know, little six-year-old kid finds a gun, his mom's gun, his dad's gun. Kid in, what was it, Virginia, six-year-old shot his teacher. Um, you know, it's 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 this, it's like a, a really horrible dystopian movie from the future, you know, although it's not future, it's real. It's, um, yeah, uh, Barbie on death row, yeah. yeah. Um, th- yeah. Th- there's, th- there, you know, I've heard some of these politicians, you know, we joke around a little bit here. But these these same oh God, I've got to stop myself from lo- uh, helping us to lose our license here. But the, <laughs> these are the uh, these are the, uh, the the same folks that uh, really uh, defend to the tooth and nail the gun lobby. And but they, you know, like let's maybe we should, you know, if if, if they kill, if they kill at fourteen, if they can go to school, if they can, you know, have all these other rights, yeah. they have the right to die. And believe me, I've I've already interviewed um, three people on death row who were murdered by the state, and one of them uh, supposedly committed the crime when he was thirteen, stayed in jail until he was eighteen, and then was executed. Yeah, I you know I mean I, I and I think about it. I remember the the, the last interview. I didn't you know what what. what because he was hoping for having his sentence commuted. And I said, what if your sentence is commuted? What would you do? How would you spend the rest of your life? And he says, well, I want to help my country. I joined the army. Yeah, yeah. No, the, the entire culture, I mean, that's how we solve things, right? They're, they're, it's, it's, it's a very angry and mean place. And, and um, yeah, this is, this is, it's, it's a jolt every time I see these stories. I mean, I just like, you know, you think of the parents, right? Uh, what a shock it is to them. And then you, you know, get the obligatory garbage from the politicians. We're thinking about you, we're praying for you, blah, blah, blah. And then you get like the crazies like Marjorie Taylor Greene and and then nothing, you know, nothing will get done. Even though like I, I keep saying like there's one thing that's in common 100% of the times and that's guns. And, and it's just, it's, 
you know, I, I, if you like a, a few years ago, I was teaching abroad in Italy when I think the Parkland massacre happened, and those Italian students they just they just kept saying, "What? How, how is that?" And I was like, "I have no answer," but they were just stunned, absolutely stunned that could happen. You know, that anybody could just get a gun and a kid could walk into school, and that they would want to. You know, uh, it is very uniquely American on that particular case. I mean, there's violence in other countries, but it's usually connected to some kind of criminal activity. It's not just random like it is here where, you know, um, somebody, I mean, you got to be afraid to go to a grocery store, gas station. I mean, I mean, I, I don't think it'll happen, but I've often thought, you know, when I'm lecturing, somebody could walk into my classroom, you know, I have a, I'm in a room with 300 students, you know? Uh, so can, can one of those students in Texas these days, can one of those students walk in with a gun showing obvious and sort of like place it on the desk during the uh, the course time i think legally it's supposed to be concealed but but last year texas got you know they changed those laws too so i'm not really sure like if they could i mean i've seen i don't know if i've seen anybody open i mean there's no doubt that kids have guns in their backpacks in school there's no doubt about that i have no doubt about that but I'm not sure what the what the precise laws on campus carry are. They used to be that you had to have a license that had to be concealed. Which you were, I mean, before that you weren't allowed to gun on campus no matter what. Then they said, well, if you have a license and it's concealed, you can. But I'm not sure because last year Texas got rid of the permit system. So now there's not even a permit system for Texas. So I don't know how that applies to campuses, but I'm not sure. I mean, if that happened with me, I would obviously, you know, leave class or cancel class or something. But um uh, you know, I think that, that that's clearly something that we all think about now, right, in public places, in public spaces. It's just easy to get, and whether it's, you know, in Texas, it's just so easy to obtain a gun. At a, at a, and like I said, my son got his at a uh, sporting goods store, and uh, his friends, I said that they thought he bought it on his 21st birthday, you know. So, um, you know, and there's, there's nothing, you know, uh, background checks are uh, – Basically, you know, they're, 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 they're generally not done, you know, in, in, in a lot of detail. Um, if it's a private sale, it doesn't even have to go through any kind of check. I mean, people are buying guns on you know, eBay and things like that, you know, Craigslist. So Yeah, and the, the other thing that we're just about out of time, but the other thing that is coming back is this notion of we hear it from all the experts on the corporates um, that, you know, profiling. You know, if we if we kept better track of people, keeping you know, we there's so many there's so many clues and signals that come. I, I what I hear is like God, I, I I lived next to him for 37 years, and I didn't know he was out of his mind with nine guns. Yeah. Uh, I, I, you know what I'm saying? It's uh, yeah. I think I think a lot of people would use that basically as an excuse, right? Uh, I mean, in, in a lot of these cases, there are clear signs ahead of time, you know, like uh, yes. uh, we've had. Um, well, like, you know, the the the, the person who sh- was in Colorado, Colorado Springs, not long ago at the, uh, I think it was a, an LGBTQ club. I mean, that person had been called. He was on the, the, you know, basically on the police radar, and they didn't do anything about the guy, you know? So, I mean, if somebody, you know, is a clear danger, then I think something should be done. But, yeah, the state will use that probably to go after 
people he just doesn't like for other reasons too. But I mean, right. you know, uh, racism could be a problem on that front. Yeah, there's you all know. kinds of stuff. And you know, I, I I'm a firm believer, like especially because of my son and, and mental health. Absolutely, this country yes. has to take that seriously. Yes. But at the end of the day, it's a gun issue. It is a gun. It's a hundred percent a gun issue. And unless you deal with it that way, I mean. It, you know, it's just, it's, it's ridiculous. It's, you can't address an issue if you're not willing to address what causes it, you know? Yeah. And I mean, think about that. It's when we're thinking about causes, thinking about the, the, the thing that we do to young people when they, we send them off to crazy wars, then they don't know why they're there. And then they come back and they don't know why they're here and they kill themselves by the yeah. thousands, and that is a part of that circular violence, right? Yeah, absolutely. And and violence among military veterans is is bigger than you know the, their population at large. Yeah, it's yeah. it's a really like it's it's a very dystopian and violent uh, culture. It's amazing, and it, the statistics compared to other countries is not even just out of control. Anyway, yeah. we're going to leave it there for now. Bob, I really appreciate you uh, taking the time. We've been speaking with Professor Robert Bozenko. He's a professor of U.S. foreign policy at the University of Houston. He co-hosts the Green and Red podcast, which discusses politics and history and other stuff, too. Uh, professor, a, really a pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you, Dennis. I appreciate what you do, too. You're a you're a real legend in, in uh, my mind and what we do. So I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you. All right. You're Thanks. listening to Flashpoints. Take care. Be safe. Please be safe. It's amazing. You know, he's teaching. He's got 300 kids in the class. Everybody can buy a gun. They, each person could have three guns in their pocketbook or in their wallet. And uh, you could have uh, a shootout at the OK Corral. Who knows? It's crazy. It's crazy with these weapons. Really crazy. Remember congressmen walking around uh, the halls of Congress today wearing AR-15 buttons and smiling? Boy, that makes me mad. Listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio, we're going to replay for you a powerful segment we did on Pakistan, which the United States uh, went ahead and destabilized, so now there's some real problems there. Stay with us. Again, uh, with Pakistan, situation is quite serious there, and you have to say that uh, the United States holds uh, a great deal of responsibility in terms of the uh, current situation on the ground, Professor Janet Ahmad. Uh, it seems like American interference once again has uh, created a situation that's leading to great suffering and it could get a lot worse. You want to sort of put this into some context? Uh, the very uh, popular uh, former uh, prime minister, uh, Amir Khan has been run out of the country with, you have to say, with the support of the United States government. And now it's a mess. Yeah, Dennis, uh, good to be with you again. But uh, yeah, certainly not under these circumstances in Pakistan. Uh, it's, uh, they, they, you know, to be fair, 
to the United States. Uh, at this particular point, it itself is thoroughly confused about what the what the heck to do with the uh, the situation right now in Pakistan. It is certainly the case, as you say, the context is 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 the regime change that took place last uh, April against uh, Imran Khan uh, and. He was popular then, but the popularity level right now has quadrupled. Uh, and uh, right now, um, this a sustained popular mobilization has been going on uh, for uh, in his support for a, a year now, virtually. And what uh, what uh, he has survived in terms of assassination attempts, uh, multiple attempts to arrest him when. Uh, Security forces come. Thousands are inside of you know that can fit inside of uh, his, the premises of his home. Thousands are outside, um, and so and and of course there have been some brave um, high court and Supreme Court justices as well that have said that some of these charges are bogus that have been leveled at him. And right now, uh, what I was saying to be fair to the United States, I think that they are really as seeing this situation as having backfired in a, in a dramatic way and kind of the clowns of the polit- uh, politicians they put in place have, have, have been just thoroughly corrupt and, and as they've always been and further ruined the country's e- economic situation and the military that for some reason throughout the country's history, of course, it's played a huge role it, it, had, it had certain uh, level of respect from the people, just as a disciplined, somewhat meritocratic institution, etc. It's a very formidable military. Even that, because of its role, the, the role that the chief of army staff, usually the most uh, powerful person in Pakistan, role that the former chief of army staff played in that regime change operation. So even the... Uh, for the first time, I think one of the most uh, interesting and perhaps uh, uh, very alarming things is that for the first time in the history of the country, you actually have the Pakistani military uh, very much divided on this question, very much divided with the with uh, middle ranks and junior ranks, you know, with, with uh, largely with Khan and soldiers. 99% with Imran Khan. So, so, so when the top military high command when they want them to go after Khan, uh, they have to be very careful, which is why actually they have not really done that. Could you talk a little bit about the, the fragile nature of the situation and the dangerous nature of the United States getting involved? Talk about the, the, the geopolitical importance of Pakistan uh, and why it's sort of borderline insane to try and destabilize the country in the context of current politics. Absolutely. The, the, Dennis, this is the key. This, uh, the, throughout the Cold War, of course, the U.S. Um, and Pakistan, uh, Pakistan chose to be in pretty much the Western U.S.-led camp. Uh, unfortunately, it was not uh, in the non-aligned movement uh, uh, camp, uh, and, and that relationship really solidified in the 1980s when they jointly 
conducted the the so-called uh, Mujahideen-led jihad in Afghanistan against the Soviets uh, who were there. Uh, but uh, after that, uh, things started to kind of... Uh, then uh, all of a sudden the United States remembered, oh, wait, you guys have been embarking on a nuclear weapons program since the 1970s, so we put some sanctions on you. Of course, then 2001 happens, and the U.S. needs Pakistan again, uh, for NATO supply routes, etc. And if the Pakistanis did not comply, uh, Dick Armitage, the Undersecretary of State, told the General Musharraf at that time in Pakistan that we would uh, bomb you back to the Stone Age. So I think Musharraf made the choice and said that, sure, okay, we'll go along. Although one can argue that the, the Pakistanis played a, a smart game, went long a little bit here and there, not so much there. Uh, and uh, and lo and behold, of course, the Taliban come back. So the context has been, it's, it's been going up and down, but what really changed things dramatically in the history of the country was the emergence of Imran Khan and his political party because the country has been either dominated by the military or the most venal and corrupt political class you can think of on the planet. And so it really has not made a difference to the people, whether it's been military rule or so-called civilian democratic rule, because it's it's basically um, a situation in which the rulers are just trying to plunder and pillage as much as they can the country. Imran Khan, uh, former cricketer uh, turned politician, philanthropist, uh, uh, established the first uh, uh, free uh, cancer hospital in Asia in the name of his uh, late uh, mother. Very well respected uh, and for his honesty, integrity, and so on. And he said that, well, you know, uh, not, things are not just going to happen just by charity, charitable work alone. And he went entered into politics and he became instantly very popular. Uh, and uh, at this stage now, precisely because he represents everything that uh, the power elite of the country despise and uh, in, to top it off, Washington despises, that is, an independent foreign policy that could perhaps get Pakistan out of its economic woes, could help it uh, uh, strengthen its its old ties with China, uh, uh, improve ties with uh, its historic rival, which is in Russia, from which it could get uh, cheap energy and wheat and so on. So Washington was not pleased with that uh, either, and it saw the direction that Khan was going in. And not to mention, by the way, not to forget, because this is also a huge issue, but that uh, Khan, as opposed to many other Muslim regimes, maybe your audience may know, um, many of these Muslim regimes are cozying up to Israel now because they also think it's a way to get in the good books of Washington. On the other hand, Khan uh, said, said absolutely not, and his uh, defense of the Palestinian struggle for self-determination has been uh, unequivocal. So um, there were reasons that Washington wanted him out as well, and everyone thought that everything would be okay until tens of, million, tens of millions, tens of millions come out on the streets day after day after day uh, since he's been ousted. So that, that's in the situation, Dennis. Well, you know, um, well, let me just tell people you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. Uh, and, uh, you know, 
professor, again, we got the U.S. meddling in a very difficult situation. By the way, how is, uh, my understanding is uh, that that uh, uh, Khan is not always safe, that his life may be in danger, that there have been attempts or threats on his life. Um, is that a, still a problem? Oh, absolutely. Dennis, that, that, that is, uh, that has been plan A throughout. I mean, um, the, in fact, there's so much so that they, they weren't even trying for a plan B. The, plan a, the, the only way they, they really think they can, they can uh, subdue this is, is to assassinate Khan. So there was, uh, one attempted assassination. It didn't work. Uh, and, uh, instead, of course, then the popularity goes up even further because now, Everyone knows for sure that virtually the entire power elite, civilian and military, um, are want, want him out. Um, he fortunately survived that. He was shot at the, on the leg, and um, and and uh, interestingly enough, even that assassination attempt, um, they had sort of just hired someone um, to to do it who they wanted to just. Uh, Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't, who knows. And just say that some, some extremist uh, Muslim did it. Um, but my, my feeling is there's not too many people in the military that are that, that actually want to actually even do it right now. Um, but, uh, but yes, that, that is always been plan A. Now, these plan B types of uh, to, uh, attempting to arrest them, they're, they're even looking more ridiculous because... Uh, on the most bogus of charges coming from politicians whose levels of corruption and venality. I mean, so you can imagine in the eyes of the people that this has uh, become a joke and, 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 and Han knows that. I mean, if uh, anything by this situation, and this is what I was, what I was saying in terms of um, confusion in Washington, uh, the confusion, I think, is now emanates from the fact that uh, they uh, uh, they don't know what would happen if actually if, if Khan was really confronted. I mean that th this really could be a, a situation of a popular revolt and uh, civil war uh, and so on. And that brings us back to what you were asking earlier. I mean the geostrategic significance of Pakistan as the only nuclear-armed country in the Muslim world, uh, something that uh, both Washington and Israel have always detested, and in fact Israel has tried to, in the past, take out uh, Pakistan's nukes, um, and uh, a country of 230 million, uh, bordering China, um, the for China, it's been an incredibly important relationship. It's not, uh, you know, people like to talk about, oh, well, you know, it's just with a, like a neo-colonial. Actually, they're very mutually interdependent uh, because um, uh, your audience should know that, uh, of course, the American Armada has turned, you know, the South China Sea into like an American lake by all of its warships, etc. So there's a real yes. danger there that if, if, you, if the United States ever did try to blockade, some type of blockade there in the Strait of Malacca, where 90% of global trade goes through, what the Chinese have done to their Belt and Road Initiative and its specific initiative called CPEC in Pakistan, Chinese-Pakistan Chinese Economic Corridor, is built a 
a route that goes to the port of Gwadar in in Pakistan, which is in the Indian Ocean, very strategic, and you're able to then access energy and so on and so forth. So, so it's also in that sense, it's, it's geostrategically incredibly important. Of course, bordering India, uh, also which is a part of the Quad, but is also you know the U.S. is facing issues with its friends these days too, as you know <laughs> very well with Saudi Arabia, with India, and so on. So um, Pakistan, um, they, they, they really needed Pakistan right now, and they thought they would have it uh, in their bags after the removal of Khan, but uh, it has completely black, backfired right now. Um, but, 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 but still, I mean, we, we don't know. It's very dangerous. All Khan has been uh, calling for is uh, what, what is what actually needs to be done, and that's, uh, that's election. Uh, to be held, but then the people in power, the generals, Washington, everyone knows that he will sweep the elections. Um, they are trying to postpone that as much as possible. Do you think there'd be a, a, a that uh, uh, Amran Khan would have a different position uh, when it comes to Israel, particularly now that it's got you know an extreme right wing, really a criminal? government in charge would his policies be concerning to the United States government in the context of Israel right I mean you know no, on that he will never waver and I mean I think his position will be even hardened now but I mean the thing is and this is what we often say is hey that look you know, if Khan wanted to play it nice, you know, okay, he could do some things, uh, even be somewhat uh, uh, open to the idea of having some relationship. A lot of pressure was put on him by the, by the Saudis and the Emiratis, who, you know, the UAE has normalized relations with Israel, and a lot of pressure was put on Pakistan, but on this one, he refused. He absolutely refused. He said the same way position he has on the uh, question of Kashmir, which is under Indian occupation, he's in the same position he has on Palestine. And so, um, no, on, uh, I think, and that's why I say that while there are the, uh, these other huge geopolitical issues as well, that is also one of them. Uh, the fact that Khan is not going to budge uh, on on the question of Israel and Palestine, and that does not only get him in trouble with uh, Washington, but all these other Muslim regimes that are, of course, going the other direction, that are trying to cozy up with Israel and uh, and so on. So um, uh, Khan represents the voice of the people uh, in Pakistan. I mean, uh, it's it's, it's uh, this uh, even on this question of Israel. I mean, it's, it's pretty much ninety nine percent. You know, say that no, the, the way that Israel behaves. We are not going to establish diplomatic relations with it. So he represents the voice of the people. And so you have for the first time in the country's history a a, a, a politician and a political party that actually represents uh, the voice of the people versus both the civilian and military elite as well as their backers uh, in Washington. I did notice that um, the uh, former U.S. representative uh 
on Afghanistan, Zalmay Khalzad, uh, yeah. had some concern about what was going on. I believe he he said in part, uh, um, he uh, reminded the Pakistani rulers that sequential cannibalizing of its leaders through jailing, execution, and assassination right. was the wrong path. Say, yeah. yeah. But that, that's what I was saying, Dennis. That, that is that voice of confusion coming from Washington right now. Zalmay Khalilzad epitomizes his tweets and everything, epitomizing it perfectly, precisely that Washington has seen one year of, I mean, uh, I don't want to use any bad language here, but just a thorough mess up Thank you. by uh, the, the, the people that it put in power. So Zalmi Khalilzad, this old neocon, but somewhat of a pragmatist, uh, uh, you know, he also he was kind of responsible for starting the dialogue with the Taliban. Um, early in two that back in 2012, so he's a neocon, but he's a pragmatist as well, and he's seeing the situation. And he's saying that look, you know, even at this point, if we somehow we get rid of Khan, do you think that's going to solve our problems in this country? So, so, so I mean, he's you know he's been he's been around for a long time, and he is represents precisely what I'm ta- what I mentioned earlier. This this confusion in Washington right now is that okay, maybe. Uh, we need to, to try something else to kind of, uh, and maybe even have some dialogue uh, with Khan. Because I, I think, again, the audience needs to remember the way that uh, Khan was, has been treated by the United States, especially by, I mean, you know, I mean, surprisingly, Trump was much, um, had a much better relationship with Khan. But, but Biden, and, and, and especially when it was being realized, that the U.S. was going to withdraw from Afghanistan, that it had lost. I think that the, the, the American deep state, national security state, uh, uh, has will, will or, or at least at that point, has, had not forgiven Khan for basically being correct, uh, saying the same thing for 20 years, that there will be no military solution to this conflict, that it will only fuel more militancy. And, I mean, he was proven correct. And so... You know, even during the withdrawal, while it was happening, while Pakistan was helping the Americans to get out, these American soldiers were coming to Islamabad and going from here. Not a single call from Biden came to Khan. Uh, And so, but, but, you know, Khan never really cared. He didn't mind. But, uh, yeah, that was uh, the situation then. Does the the profound failure of U.S. policy in the occupation in Afghanistan yeah. does that still hang as a, a a weight around the neck of Pakistan? Absolutely, and particularly in the northwestern areas that border Afghanistan, the Pashtun or the Pathan, that that population, the Pashtun population, sixty percent of it, by the way, is in uh, Pakistan. Forty percent of it is in Afghanistan, which is. And they comprise about half of the population of Afghanistan, and and you know the majority of the Taliban as well. Um, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I think the, the the this was the thing. I mean, the spillover effect of that. Uh, what Khan kept speaking about. Okay, not only are you guys, uh, you know, making a mess of it uh, of Afghanistan, but of our country as well. The spillover effect. Not to, we're not we're not just talking about refugees because Pakistan has. Uh, had to handle uh, more from three, between three to five million refugees in the 1980s from Afghanistan. But more refugees, but but also the 
uh, militancy coming across, drone attacks, U.S. drone attacks, U.S. special forces uh, coming, um, Ill- illegitimate kind of special forces raids into Pakistani territory, that type of thing. And, of course, then spreading that militancy from Afghanistan into Pakistan and then the U.S. pressuring the Pakistani military to go into areas, I mean, literally not go into, uh, go and bomb areas in its own country where it's never gone to. Um, You know, so you had a um, casualty rate here of about 80,000 people died in Pakistan during the war on terror years just just inside Pakistan and so um, wow. absolutely that that the animosity from that uh, that period remains and and you know better than me you know uh Dennis uh, everyone loves to say that uh, oh well uh, there's just anti-americanism here anti-americanism no, these are critiques of American foreign policy that have caused enormous damage and harm to these societies. That's what it is. Americans come, good Americans. Yes, people here will love them, etc. But they do not like bombs, drone attacks, and 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 and, and, and night raids uh, on their weddings and funerals and so on. That has been the, has been the issue why um, Khan could capitalize. On, on Washington's constant interference in Pakistani politics. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it doesn't help uh, when they use the uh, U.S. drone system that misses about 90% of the time to uh, uh, claim that a, a water deliverer working for an American NGO is actually uh, al-Qaeda terrorist and sort of on the way out, hello, I must be going, they kill an entire family because uh, there's water in the car that looks like uh, what? Weapons or something or bombs? Absolutely right. Uh, Yes, this was the in Afghanistan right after you know the the attack. They they think that this guy was responsible and they killed the whole family. So... um, uh, this is, by the way, this, bringing this up, this is actually one of one of the, you know, the, the wish list, uh, long wish list that Washington always has of, uh, of Pakistan was, of course, restoring uh, the an American military base in Pakistan because now, now you know that, of course, there's no longer <laughs> many Americans in Afghanistan uh, and many of the Central Asian uh, countries also uh, pretty much kicked out the American military presence there. So one of the uh, major the demands, and um, when it seemed like both the military high command uh, and, of course, the civilian politicians um, were, were more than willing to grant it to them, is to restore a, an American military base in Pakistan that was there until 2011, and then it was uh, shut down um, uh, because of a variety of, of events that happened that year. But uh, but yeah, uh, the, the the U.S. certainly wants to try to restore some of its military presence in, the, in an area which uh, should be quite obvious uh, in terms of uh, not not for any terrorists, but now it's uh, what the near peer competitors that the U.S. is concerned about, and particularly of course China, China and Russia, and, and so. Um, the more it can project its power and its presence in this region, the better. And uh, it thought it would be able to do so in Pakistan, but it's uh, not looking so good right now. <laughs> I want to thank you uh, for getting up so early in the morning there, 
uh, to be with us, Professor. It's always incredibly enlightening and important subject. Uh, we don't hear much about Pakistan here in America, but um, this is an important country uh, in the region, in the world, uh, and in the middle, you know, when there are wars going on and stuff like that, the United States should not be busy uh, destabilizing uh, countries such as Pakistan. Uh, and uh, thanks for helping us uh, keep track and keep a spotlight on it, sir. What's the best way for people to get your latest work, your writing, or to follow uh, the kinds of things that uh, you care about? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm writing and speaking these days all the time on um, uh, on the gray zone, geopolitical economy, um, on counterpunch. Uh, so I, my, my writings are all right. over the place, and, and, and I'm speaking. But I, I just wanted to say to you that Dennis, and I say this every time, that uh, it is precisely how kind of uh, I'm horrified I am when when I learn that uh, about how ignorant even uh, good good friends in, in the in the U.S. are about what's happening uh, or what's not happening in, in Pakistan. That that I, I just I think of you and, and and I and I'm so happy and glad that at least. Dennis Flashpoint um, is taking the time to kind of educate his <laughs> listenership about what's going on. Thank you, so, uh, thank you, Dennis. For you, I'll uh, wake up. Uh, uh, four pats on the heart for you. Uh, be okay. safe. Take care of yourself. Uh, it's a dangerous world out there. Uh, and we want you to come back soon, okay? Yeah, thanks, thanks, thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. wraps it up for another episode of Flashpoints. Our executive producer is Dennis Bernstein. Senior producers are Miguel Gavilan Molina and Kevin Pina. Technical director is Mike Biggs. For previous episodes, go to kpfa.org or flashpoints.net. For questions or comments, email dennis at kpfa.org. Thank you for listening. <laughs>